Welcome back to the PeaceWorks podcast, everyone. You know, one of the more popular segments we've done in our time together on the PeaceWorks podcast has been questions and answers. Well, I thought it might be helpful to let you know that that's a regular part of our ministry through our social media channels. In particular, our Facebook page, PeaceWorks, conducts what we call an open door at 4. Every other Thursday at 4 p.m. in the afternoon, I take time to answer uh, followers' questions. So what I'd like to do for the next couple episodes is to share some of those uh, experiences with you. So I'm just going to give you a taste of what's available through our social media channels and invite you to follow us uh, on Facebook at PeaceWorks at Rev Chris Moles or uh, on our Twitter um, at PeaceWorks uh, underscore CM and just so you can be up to date on what we're doing through those channels but then also participate in the live Q&A that we do every other Thursday. So for the next couple episodes, I'm just going to give you a couple of those. If you find those on our Facebook page, you'll see that there's hours of content right now that's completely free. And this is just a taste of that. So I hope you enjoy uh, these next couple episodes of questions and answers featured on our Open Door at 4. Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. Opportunities that are still available to you. This is a great time to engage online and we have something, uh, a service that we've been providing for the last uh, two years that I think would be highly beneficial to you if you're interested in engaging in this work and that's PeaceWorks University. Uh, Every month we do this in PeaceWorks University a little more thoroughly, a little more intimately. So we have our live Q&A once a month. It's at least an hour of content and discussions diving a little deeper into the content uh, that we that we cover here uh, on Open Door at 4. Uh, also in there, there's a monthly video masterclass where I communicate, talk with an expert in the field. We have 24 or 25 of those logged away uh, from topics from sexual abuse in marriage to lethality assessments with law enforcement to understanding church dynamics to emotional abuse with my friend Leslie Vernick and on and on and on uh, it goes. We offer monthly practical ready-to-use tools in our toolbox section. And then we have uh, our Q&A. And this year we're offering uh, our watch parties, live watch parties of the IBCD video series, Domestic Abuse, which features uh, myself as the counselor. And uh, we're watching those together as a team with PeaceWorks University. We finished video one, we're gonna move on to video two. It's a nine part series. So there's still time to join and get the the meat of that. If you wanna learn more about PeaceWorks University and all the things that we offer, head on over to our website, chrismoles.org and uh, and learn more. All right, open door four, let's get into some questions. I've got a list here in front of me. I just printed them off, so we're gonna be uh, winging it. Let's see what you guys are asking and what solutions we can come up with. Question number one. Let me turn this off behind me. 
Question number one. I'm a social worker. What are your thoughts and views on Don Hennessy's assessment that, quote, until we as a society address the culture's endorsement of men's sexual entitlement, we will fail to solve the issue of violence towards women, end quote. So uh, I know a little bit about Don Hennessy's work, uh, but this is not an isolated sentiment. I would say that uh, Hennessy is communicating what a lot of people in the work communicate. I would, from a domestic abuse standpoint, I would point to people in society like uh, Jackson Katz or Tony Porter and A Call to Men, Paul Kibble, others who have articulated the same uh, kind of assessment as well as DAIP, the Duluth Abuse Intervention Project, that the collective socialization of men does contribute to violence against women. I would agree with the assessment. Now, where I struggle and where I think it falls apart are the solutions that are offered. And I'm going to try to say this well. I don't know how well it's going to come out. I think sometimes when we identify the problem as systemic, which I would agree, I think men's violence against women in the world, when you look at the World Health Organization, you look at the judicial system and the statistics that come out of there, when you just look at movies, entertainment, uh, there is a cultural dynamic where violence against women is pandemic. I would agree with that. I think when we only see problems as systemic, however, um, we run the risk of addressing with broad brush um, large assessments and we try to shift culture rather than addressing the hearts of people. I think it has to be a both and. Uh, I don't believe, and maybe this is just my own personal theology, I'm not really one who believes in kind of a utopic, you know, we're going to bring about this culture shift. I'm also not a doomsday guy either, but I think the best means of addressing oppression is to address and call oppressors to account. And it's a lot easier to do that when you identify who is oppressive versus the, the group think type, type thing. And, and one of the ways we can look at that is that racism is real. Sexism is real. And yes, if racism is real, then there are groups of people who are guilty of that. But only blaming the groups of people doesn't help the plight of the victim. It helps bring awareness, but we still have to address the individuals who are committing acts of hate, not just the group, the larger group to which they may or may not identify with. The same is true with sexism. Everybody, um, all of us who are men, we should be confronted with the realities of sexism, primarily violence against women. We should be educated on that. We should be helping young men recognize that collectively. Um, but I think it will help a lot, but there will still be individuals who commit acts, commit crimes, commit... Um, acts of abuse and violence, and we must target them, to be honest with you. So I think it's a both and. So yeah, I would agree with Hennessy's assessment as much as I would Tony Porter, Paul Kibble, Jackson Katz, DAIP. The collective socialization of men is a real phenomena, uh, and there is this ac access to privilege that we are often blind to if you're going to be looking at it systemically. But as Christians, we are called to be salt and light culturally. That's true but also individually and locally. And so I am one who is much more inclined to be active locally uh, because I can affect change, I think, on individuals at a much higher rate, an observable rate, than, you know, collectively. And a lot of times I think the collective idea gets um, 
hijacked by politics quite a bit. Like, well, then we've got to have a political party or a political leader when really it's about the group think and what's culturally acceptable. And uh, I think that can be easily hijacked. So it's a both and, in my opinion. So I wouldn't disagree with Hennessy's words. I would just be, because of that reality, I want to engage men and boys. And I do that not from the highest level. I actually do that from the bottom up. How am I raising my boys? How am I interacting with my basketball players when I'm coaching basketball? How am I calling perpetrators to account? Who am I pointing them to? Right? Am I pointing them to a societal model or am I pointing them to Jesus uh, and the kingdom of God? Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a both and. There's a lot more to it I could get into. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we teach on that quite a bit, especially uh, when working with things from like a call to men and Tony Porter. But we definitely don't want to neglect the individual in that. Next question. Could you talk about the temptation for friends and family members to mutualize abuse or attempt to remain neutral? So that's a, yeah, it's a huge temptation um, and somewhat of an understandable one. I mean, I get it. Uh, this is somebody that we love and that we care about. Um, even if they have not just been accused of abuse, but like we've actually witnessed it, you'll see family members actually become supportive. It's a hard balance, right? Because we don't necessarily say that like mom and dad should disown their, their son, for instance, but they should love their son enough to confront the wickedness while at the same time loving them and caring for them. Uh, and that's a hard balance. I would not want to be in that position. Lord help me if I ever am. That would be a very difficult position. It reminds me of uh, The Burning Bed. If you've seen that film or interacted with that story, the Francine Hughes story. So the Francine Hughes story is really prominent within law enforcement, law enforcement in the courts, because I believe it was the first time that that temporary insanity or, you know, that escape, victim escaping uh, was used in the court when she lit the bed on fire, Mickey's bed on fire. But if you recall, Mickey was insanely violent, abusive, controlling, and the story is substantiated by law enforcement, family members, friends, outsiders, insiders, and yet uh, in the court itself, I mean, Mickey's mom is portrayed as um, being on his side 125%. Uh, that temptation is real. And so I think we have to, first of all, acknowledge that. Now, now for believers, we have to have uh, a standard that's a little higher than our emotions or how we feel, right? And so our standard has to be uh, the Word of God and what God says about sin and how we deal with it. And so that standard's got to come into place. And of course, with believers, again, you've got passages of Scripture like 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where no temptation's overtaken you except what's common to man, but God's faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but provide a way of escape so you can endure it, persevere through it, right? It's not that he removes the temptation, but he gives you the strength to persevere. And really, truth is one of those vehicles that I think God uses to give parents and brothers and sisters and family members and close friends perseverance to endure. I tell uh, the guys that I work with uh, a lot, at least on the, the biblical Christian side of things, that uh, you need people in your life who love you enough to risk their friendship with you to tell you hard things, right? And so, I mean, if, if you are a friend of somebody who uh, has been abusive and you want to love them well, you need to love them enough to, yeah, be present, 
be available, be a sounding board, but also love them enough to speak truth about what's acceptable and what's unacceptable, about what's biblical and what's uh, demonic. And love them enough to say, you know, I love you enough to put our friendship at risk to tell you the truth. And then you need the truth. Jesus said the truth would set us free. And so that's that temptation is real, but I think God gives us the strength and opportunity to overcome that. That's why I say a lot in this work, and you guys have heard me say this, we want to say hard things in winsome ways. And so it's important that we say hard things, that we say the truth in love. Um, and some people hear that and say, oh, well, you know, you're watering it down. You're not being, you know, um, you're not holding people accountable. But accountability is not necessarily always punitive. Certainly consequences can be. Um, but love is in many ways, of course, patient, kind, long-suffering. But love is also uh, uh, necessarily hard in some ways, right? So you have to be firm and resolute when you're interacting with individuals who've been abusive. Um, you have to speak the truth. So Rosanna asks, any ideas on how to deal with a client who's angry at her inept church committee and not cautious with her words? That's pretty common, but let's continue on. I'm afraid she'll say something uh, that will undermine her position even further. They already would like to chalk her emotional response to her sin rather than a legitimate response to what's going on in her life. So I'm going to go out on a limb, Rosanna, and, and say this is in your particular uh, tribe. So I think you... If this is true, then you have a lot more weight because there might be some theological underpinning that would help. I know for me, I think resistance is a uh, word that's that's consistent with, with scriptural understanding. I think victims should resist. I think victims of oppression should speak out. They should resist. But when we resist sinfully, right, when we resist um, in a demonstratively aggressive way, we take the heat off of the oppressor and it gets placed on the victim. And I think you know this. So what, what I'm afraid is happening is the victim in your case is legitimately suffering, but in her suffering and the mishandling of her situation by the church, she's been reacting in an aggressive way, an angry way, and the church is interpreting that as abusive in and of itself or as unseemly. Now, granted, I think it's a valid response to being wronged. I think anger is a valid response. Now, what you do with that anger, and that's where maybe Ephesians chapter 4, starting around verse 28 or so, or even before that, 26, 27, that would be a helpful reminder of, in your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Don't give the devil a foothold, right? Don't let any unwholesome words come out of your mouth only what's good for building up. Um, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. What is verse 31? Get rid of all bitterness, anger, malice, uh, slander, uh, rage, brawling, right? Get rid of those sinful expressions of anger and then replace it with righteous expressions of anger by being kind. And the kindest thing we can do in the face of oppression is to call it to account. Be compassionate. Who... Who more to pity than the one who misuses power? How sad, right? And then forgiving, but with a caveat, just as in Christ God forgave us. And so a willingness to forgive, assuming that the oppressor repents. 
That's the condition, right? Uh, God forgave me because of contrition, repentance, of certainly the work of Jesus. But we're asking the oppressor then to repent, acknowledging their wrongdoing. And then, of course, I would use Matthew 5 to illustrate that, um, the ways in which Jesus taught his disciples to respond to oppressive Romans, such as turning the other cheek appropriately, not being a doormat, leaving the courtroom naked or going the extra mile. Uh, Paul's words of Romans 12, much it depends upon you live at peace with everyone, um, overcome evil with good. And then, of course, Romans 13, that the civil government has the right to wield the sword. So, I mean, I would begin to, I would continue to have those resistant conversations. Resistance is valuable. It's necessary. We want to do it in a way that highlights the oppressor's sin, right, and the glory of God in my life. So how can we restructure this resistance so that other people can hear effectively? I hope that helps. I may have rambled uh, um, a little bit. And David, you're welcome. Holy Week, this has been a, a more stressful Holy Week than normal with all the organizational components associated with um, doing things via distance. But our church has stepped up, man. Our little church has some great people and... Um, we got through Palm Sunday. Since I got through, we were able to celebrate Palm Sunday with a variety of folks from different locations. We're having Monday Thursday service tonight. We're taking communion together creatively. Uh, and uh, tomorrow with Good Friday, we're doing some creative things. We're having a sunrise service, and we're having Easter Sunday all via distance. So it, it has been a, a busy, busy week, but God's faithful. Let's move on to another question. Of course, if you have one, you can put it in the chat. I'm going to Go back to my list here. Have you had to wrestle with the complex challenges that come from a perpetrator who is undiagnosed but high-functioning on autism? Absolutely. Actually, yeah. Those discussions, and when, when a person's undiagnosed as being on the spectrum, it makes it a little more difficulty, difficult, I guess, because you don't have that. It's suspicion-based. But absolutely, uh, we've dealt with folks in a variety of different aspects, whether it be men of peace or casual interactions or even through the court system, that when you interact with them, you, you begin to think, well, that may be, um, that seems like autism or Asperger's, right? And uh, typically, there's not much you can do, not with myself, not being a clinician, not being somebody who offers that diagnostic. You can make that recommendation if you're in a counseling relationship, encouraging someone to be tested. But even at that point, there's not a whole lot out there intervention-wise for high-functioning autism or spectrum-based work. Much of the work is going to be the same with a few exceptions, and that is how you dialogue about empathy is going to be a little different. Um, you, with impact on abuse, a lot of times you're trying to draw out the heart helping a perpetrator or an abuser recognize the impact of their abuse. With folks on the spectrum, sometimes you won't get that direct connection. And so you have to do, for lack of a better word, you, you rehearse truth. And so sometimes with folks on the spectrum, what you're left with is saying, okay, do you believe this is true? That when you do A, B, and C, this person experiences X, Y, and Z. Whether you can feel it or emote with that or not, do you now see the connection? And if a person says yes, then you start to teach and train, okay, then, then not the why of you should stop A, B, and C, but the how. I hope that makes some sense. 
uh, it's helpful if you have a, a behavioral health expert or somebody who is accustomed to working with individuals on the spectrum to dialogue with about effective teaching methods. Because really, perpetrator work is 90% educational work, uh, what some people will call psychoeducational work. So when you have a suspicion that somebody's on the spectrum, just like if you have a suspicion that somebody is uh, ex has experienced trauma or um, maybe childhood sexual abuse, when there's a underlying contributor doesn't cause abuse, but it makes your care for that person and confrontation for that person different, then it's helpful to have outside perspective on what's the best way to inform that individual. Which if you, if you think about the three components of our work, we talk about information, transformation, and reformation. The information piece is probably the most tricky with the spectrum conversation, right? Because how you teach and how someone learns does make a difference, right? The gospel is effective no matter where a person comes from culturally, um, mentally, physically. It, it really is the same. Um, and then reformation is about change. So how you learn will affect how you change. So I hope I answered the question effectively enough. But yeah, we have worked with folks who, uh, again, without being diagnosed, you're, you're talking about suspicion of Asperger's or autism uh, as you're working with them. And so it does affect the way you teach and the conversations that you have, to be, to be quite honest. Uh, that's why having connectivity to uh, better intervention programs or uh, domestic violence resource centers in your area would be helpful as they might have recommendations for uh, working with individuals who have co-occurring issues or other components, just learning, um, even learning disabilities affects the way you teach and the way you interact. And remember, 90% of this work, like I said, is educational. So it does affect um, how, you, how you move forward. Whew. All right. Uh, Julie says, cool, taking communion creatively. Yeah. So, you know, the thing about Monday Thursday is it's really this tangible reality. Jesus washes the disciples' feet. He uh, has his last meal with them. And so it makes it very hard to celebrate that by a distance. So, um, this was just, we were talking about it, and I said, okay, we're going to have communion. Just gather the elements the best you can, right? And take a, we're going to do it via Facebook Live. Take a picture, take a selfie of how you prepared the elements. Be sure to share so we can celebrate with each other with the simplicity of this. So let's see. Um, no more uh, questions coming in on the chat. Be sure to put those in if you're interested. Here's another question. This is the last one on my list. Is there any correlation between pregnancy and domestic violence, disclosure, or exposure? And the answer is yes. You hear the way I say that? Yes. So there is a correlation between escalation and pregnancy and childbirth. Uh, we've just seen it. It's, I can say anecdotally. I've seen usually one of two things happen in a in an abusive relationship when a child is introduced, either through uh, "Honey, I'm pregnant" or through childbirth, and that is a softening for a season of the abuse uh, or an escalation of the abuse. And what's most common that we've seen is escalation um, during pregnancy or when the child is born, um, citing jealousy. Um, making it more difficult to control. The, the irony of 
The irony of it is that abusers many times will pursue pregnancy as a means of controlling, but at the same time, abusers will escalate their violence uh, during pregnancy because of fear, of competing, of losing control, of losing the attention. It's, it's a bizarro world reality. So, yes, there's a correlation. Is it a guarantee? No. No, I mean, if, I, if we were able to, you know, pinpoint everything about this topic, you know, then, then, you know, we could prevent it, I think. But the reality is every case is different. Every situation is different. Every couple is different. And certainly every victim and every abuser is different. So um, there's a lot of complex, complexities, excuse me. But yeah, I would say we've seen that time and time again between pregnancy or childbirth and escalation in the use of force. And it is something to be aware of if, for instance, you've been in a violent relationship or an abusive relationship and the next stage, the next step in your relationship is children, then I would see that as a um, uh, a big, big danger because first of all, if it's your first child, it's going to tie you to that individual for a lifetime. Uh, and then secondly, the risk of um, being abused or having the child used against you is, you know, um, a high risk. It, it's just the way these things are, unfortunately. I hate to speak so matter-of-fact. I feel like I'm just, that's the way it is. But it, I, I do think it's a fair question, and people should know that there's an escalatory nature to this. So as we've been doing uh, so far with our one other Open Door at Four in the quarantine, I'm just giving a little bit more time because I know that material like this is, desired and we want to make sure we're serving folks. So if you have any other questions, uh, be sure to put those in. Now I'm only seeing the questions from the PeaceWorks site. So if you're commenting uh, on my page or somebody's shared page, I may not be seeing it. Sometimes I see it, sometimes I don't. Uh, so if you want your question uh, answered or addressed, then be sure to head over to the PeaceWorks page, our public page, and and ask that question. So any other questions? I know we've we've got uh, several people still on the line, so I'm happy to hang on for a little while longer if there's anything else. In the meantime, uh, I did highlight that uh, this is a unfortunate time that we're kind of isolated and distancing the way we are, but it's also a great time to learn. If you have the opportunity to safely learn and want to engage in more of this content, uh, there's plenty of ways to get connected Certainly the PeaceWorks podcast, which is my weekly podcast, drops every Tuesday morning around 6 a.m. And uh, that's free content. Uh, anybody's welcome to consume it. You can find it on our website, chrismoles.org, or through Google Play or iTunes. Uh, if you're looking for even more than that, PeaceWorks University is a great resource. Um, members from all over the world, from all different backgrounds interested in this work, are in there. PeaceWorks University is about providing gospel-centered biblical resources for uh, people helpers uh, wanting to address the issue of domestic abuse. And it's a monthly membership site. You can learn more about that at chrismoles.org as well. Uh, we are currently um, producing content every month. There is over 100 hours of video-based content in that site as well as tons of written resources, free ebooks, homework assignments, worksheets, bonus material, conferences that I've done all in PeaceWorks University, as well as this year, we are 
uh, viewing the IBCD observation videos where I am the counselor in the, uh, an abuse case. And I can tell you it's as real as it gets. It's as close to reality as I think we could pull off. And I highly recommend that to you. But we're doing a watch party uh, with PeaceWorks University members. So that's my second commercial of the day. Uh, any other questions that you guys have, I'll be happy to, um, to address them. And hopefully I see uh, some of you guys are, are commenting, have been commenting about Holy Week. I hope you're having a good Holy Week, able to celebrate the resurrection and to do that safely uh, with individuals from your community. I know that tonight, for some of you, uh, especially those of you in kind of a more traditional setting, tonight is an important night, and you're really going to miss being together. Some of you guys uh, would strip the sanctuary tonight, um, especially those in the maybe the Methodist or Presbyterian tradition or Lutheran tradition. You might be stripping the sanctuary tonight in the shadow service, and um, not being able to do that, I'm sure, is painful. So our heart goes out to you guys, because I know this is... A real tangible week for a lot of us. Julie asks uh, in response to the autism question, the heart condition will be apparent if there's a willingness to receive input from another or not. In other words, it makes church discipline issues more tricky when there's an underlying bodily weakness. So that that's true. Uh, but I think fruit should still be able to be seen some kind of growth trying to process all this. I think you're right. That's why I'm saying the education piece is really important. Are we giving this individual the tools to make the changes properly, or are we holding to the standard that they can't quite comprehend? Uh, so what I mean by that, I don't mean to diminish anyone's capacity, but I think for me, motivation inspires my behavior. Sometimes uh, individuals who have a little bit of a learning disconnect or, or don't think the way I think, I shouldn't even view it as a deficiency because it's not a deficiency, it's just a different wiring, um, there might need to be another approach, adding layers of not just the why, but also the how and the to what end uh, things are done. Uh, what resources do you recommend for male victims whose wives are abusive? There's very little out there. I would, um, I would recommend aspects that are very similar for uh, female victims, such as understanding power and control. And this is one of the things I do ask male victims who reach out to us is to understand the dynamics of power and control and to ask yourself, am I being controlled? Am I living in fear? Is my freedom restricted? You, you, may, be, you may not be a victim of abuse if you still have that relative freedom, you're not living under threat or fear, and there's no aspect of power. It may not be comfortable but if you can come to that point and say, okay, I'm annoyed, I'm not terrified, it might allow you to have more choices than, say, a female victim would. That'd be the first place I would go is understand power and control and to see if that's the case. The second is I often have guys present as victims, and it turns out that they're not. They're using power and control themselves, so that's why I point back to that. And then the third is a local resource, finding a counselor or a pastor or a friend who'd be able to articulate and walk through this with you. Because fr quite frankly, I have not seen good resources for male victims of female violence because um, it, there's just not a whole lot out there. I have seen good resources for male victims of other men. About 75% of um, male victims are victims of other men. I think the last statistic I saw on that, when you consider childhood sexual abuse. 
Uh, I am, I mean, I've got some projects. I don't know when I'm going to finish them. I am the king of unfinished projects uh, and, and things that people want me to write about. But uh, I am considering working on some things in this area, but it probably won't be directly to male victims either, or probably more of the resistive violence. So unfortunately, I don't have a whole lot um, in that area. I would, and, and honestly, a lot of the stuff that's out there that I have read is not tremendously helpful. Uh, and just to be quite honest, I'd say about the, the majority of what I've read that's out there comes from a real bitter place. And so I, I can't think of anything to recommend right off the hand other than seeking out a good counselor um, and talking with them about it. I have a friend, uh, you know, one of her family members is being financially abused by his spouse who has some financial power. It's a very unique and um, form of abuse. There's some other areas where he experiences freedom, but in this area, there's a lot of fear and threats. And so that, that requires a little bit of care. And I would recommend that he go see a counselor uh, who understands the dynamic and impact. But as far as written material, there's not a whole lot uh, being produced yet. I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will be. And that which is being produced, I think, unfortunately, is coming out of more of a men's rights background. Um, so it has kind of some teeth to it that I think are unnecessary. I hope that's fair. I'm not trying to be dismissive. I just haven't seen a lot of good material out there for it. And then my work primarily focuses on male perpetrators for sure. Cool. Any other questions, guys? I'm happy to hang on for a little bit longer considering the circumstances we're in and uh, answer any questions that you have. Uh, this has been, this is always fun for me. I hope, I hope it's helpful for you. That's one of the things we want to do is produce content that is helpful for the church. So anything else that you'd like to talk about, I am free uh, to discuss it. Happy to give it a shot anyway. Nobody's commented on my shirt today. Uh, this is my Ferris Bueller shirt. Hope you can relate to that. I'm notorious for saying Bueller a lot. So uh, this was a gift from my wife because I say Bueller a lot. Why do you focus primarily on male perpetrators and not calling for... I, the reason why, one, is is that's, the, that's the, the means in which I was trained. So I was trained in working with male perpetrators. I do work with female perpetrators, uh, but the dynamics and impact are completely different. Um, and historically and statistically, men are by and large um, more likely to to abuse than women. And so the way I put it is I'll be happy to deal with female women's violence against men if we can address men's violence against women first. I just think men's violence against women is a pandemic where uh, women's violence against men is unfortunate. I'm not dismissing it. I'm just saying it's, it's they're apples and oranges. And even in the criminal background, so if, if I'm addressing criminal behavior, of uh, a husband abusing a wife and a wife abusing a husband, if I've got 10 men in a men's group, I've usually got one motive manifested in multiple different ways. It's very, very similar. If I've got 10 women, I usually have 10 motives, uh, multiple means of accomplishing it, and a very different response to confrontation. The dynamics and impact are just so distinct um, that... Uh, they are very different topics, to be quite honest. So I focus in on what I know, what I think is the greatest need, uh, 
And, you know, if we ever get that one solved, I think the other one will be uh, a little easier to address, to be honest with you, uh, just because the pandemic nature of the one versus the other. So I hope that makes sense. And by no means am I dismissing male victims of female violence. I just am very aggressive and determined to tackle the area that I feel called to. Um, and then in the work I do locally with female perpetrators, I can all I can say on this forum is it is a very different kind of work uh, with with very different motivations, much more complexity uh, to the work than say men's work. If I can be that, if I can be that bold, and again, it's not I'm not intending to be dismissive. It's just the where we're at in the process.